Listener Production. Mick Fanning is known for many things. He's one of the best surfers on the planet. He's a three-time world champion. He's a man that fought a shark and lived to tell the tale. To be totally honest, um, you know, when I first started getting back in after the incident, I um, there were times where it would, you know, I'd just hear a little splash and I'd freak out. But before any of that, Mick had to deal with tragedy. I had to go home and I had to wake my mum and, uh, yeah, just had to explain to her what, what happened and... Uh, and then ring the rest of my family, which was, um, yes, yeah, hardest day of my life. Then he had to deal with injury. It looked like he was in uh, just, you know, pain and, and just, I guess, you know, as a upcoming contender to be a world title and one of the most amazing servers on the planet, the guy can't even, you know, take a shit. On November 6, 2007, Mick Fanning awoke in Brazil, his lifelong dream within touching distance. I woke up and um, I, was, I was super, super nervous and just felt, I don't know, just sick in the stomach almost. A world title was always going to be the way to, to go, all right, I've dealt with it all, you know, and, and I've risen above it all. Welcome to a tale involving surfing's biggest names. You're right back in the race. I didn't go anywhere. I was always there. Just one back on us. Throw that one away, I'm right in there. Can't wait. Game on. Well, I mean, winning another title would be really nice. I mean, winning a couple more titles would be really nice. This is the story of one title. One moment. It definitely, um, it made me want if I'm going to do something, you've got to do it right now and do it to the best of your ability. And um, he's sort of like that. It, it feels like he's that angel on my shoulder sometimes, just when it's definitely hard, you know, he's, he's there to back me up. My, my parents migrated from uh, England and Ireland when they were 18, 19, and um, the first place they landed was in Perth, actually. They were part of the um, 10 pound palms, they call them, and, um, and yeah, they only needed 100 pound in their uh, bank accounts, and they landed in Perth, and, and they were sort of like in housing commissions there, and um, yeah, my dad just sort of like, no, nah, this isn't the, the life of my family. The Fannings moved east to Penrith in Western Sydney, where in 1981 they had their fifth child, Little Mick. Oh, well, he was the youngest, so he laughed a lot because everybody was playing with him. That's the voice of Mick's wonderful mum, Liz. He was always uh, a happy-go-lucky, determined little boy who loved life and had an imaginary friend to keep him company. The Fannings were soon on the move again to Coffs Harbour in northern New South Wales, a town famous for, yep, it's Big Banana and its beaches. We lived a block away from the beach and, you know, coming from Penrith, none of us knew about surfing and then, um, yeah, my brothers just got hooked. So being the youngest of of three brothers, I uh, pretty much just followed them to the beach. His brothers literally threw him into the water and so he had no choice but to swim or surf or do something like that. Yeah, it was sort of like sink or swim and um, we just... Yeah, just went from there. Sean was the third boy. My daughter's the eldest and then I had four boys and Sean was the third boy. And um, Sean was a real sensitive 
child. He was really um, a mommy's boy. And um, Mick attached himself to Sean because he saw a lot of qualities in Sean that he liked. For instance, Sean was a very loyal person. He was a very inclusive person. He had a charisma. With Sean and I, we, we sort of we sort of stuck together because we were the little ones, and um, you know, so we always went surfing together, and um, you know, looked out for each other, and and then. Uh, yeah, I think it was just more about just trying to keep up with the big guys. Young Mick's early dreams didn't involve the surf. He was a soccer player. He loved soccer and soccer came first. I would be practising different kicks and stuff or going for a jog and I don't know, I always wanted to just do the best I possibly could. I hope you were listening closely to that last little bit. Again? I always wanted to just do the best I possibly could. This is Mick at 10 years of age, a desire already to be the best he could be. The early stokings of a competitive fire that would burn red hot, a roaring fire that would later become Mick's greatest weapon. Competitively, he's freaking fierce. That was 2012 world surfing champion Joel Parkinson. But we've skipped ahead. More of Parco in a minute. Let's go back to Mick as a 12-year-old, now living on the Gold Coast, with his life about to change dramatically. Yeah, it was a pretty funny story, actually. I um, had just uh, yeah moved from Ballina up to the Gold Coast and I was uh, going to go and do soccer sign-up. I was, I was about to go and sign up and, and we actually went the wrong day. After the soccer sign-up, we were going to go for a surf because uh, my brother Sean was going to meet up with a few guys from Quicksilver and um, see if they would sponsor him. And so we just went surfing at D-Bar and um, I, I was just coming in and um, one of the guys came up and I was like, oh, you must be looking for my brother. And they're like, oh, we didn't know you guys were brothers. Um, do you want to be sponsored too? And I was just like, all right. <laughs> I think my brother was a bit bummed, you know. And then, yeah, just surfing sort of became it. Yeah. So without getting too spiritual, freaky or way out there, dude, talk to a surfer, any surfer, and they all wax lyrical about their love of the ocean, the way it can control their emotions and in some control their entire life. It's something that consumes you, isn't it? Everyone that surfs when you're on holidays, when you're with your family, it's always in the back of your head. Yeah, definitely. It's um, one of those things where... I don't know, it's, it's almost like a drug, you know, like it just changes your mood. Um, you know, you could be having the shittest day in the world and all of a sudden you go for a surf, you get one good wave, your whole week's changed. And um, I don't know, I, for, for me personally, I, I just feel like a, a sense of calmness when I'm near the water. Even waking up, if I'm not near the beach, I've got to have some sort of water on me, you know, either it's a shower or going for a swim, um, just to start the day. Otherwise, I, uh, I wig out and just feel like a crustacean. Don't you guys wig out on me here. Mick's about to meet one of his greatest rivals. Do you need to get that? Who is it say? It says blocked. I don't know who no blocked way. is. <laughs> nope. Never. <laughs> a bloke who we would fight against for world titles, a bloke who is still one of his best mates. Joel Parkinson rejoins our story. My first real memories of, we well, year nine, um, we were kind of thick as thieves, you know, because we surfed, you know, we just we clicked straight together. You know, he was already in magazines and stuff. The Kelly Slater or the Tom Curran or the Oki of 13 year olds. <laughs> really? Wow. I thought, oh, he's probably, 
he's probably up himself or whatever. And um, and then we met, and it was just like he's like the coolest guy in the world. The Coolangatta kids now lived and breathed surfing. There'd be thirty frothing grommets in her house because Mick lived on Debo Hill, so we'd all be there. And I remember poor Liz would come home and crap everywhere and. You know, there'd be 30 guys just watching surf movies after surfing all afternoon. Victories would be cherished. Joel was like this person who was up there and Mick had to struggle to, to beat him. It was such an absolute feat for Mick to beat Joel. But it was mates first, surfers second. You know, I don't look at him as, as an amazing surfer. It's more of a friend and, and it's all about, you know, We've been through so much together and, you know, he's always been there for me. Unfortunately, Mick would soon need his friends more than ever. Is that making sense? Yeah, it is making perfect sense. Okay. And only talk about what you're comfortable talking about. Oh, look, I'm happy to talk about Sean 24 hours a day. Right. Such a lovely boy. He was a really funny, funny guy. Um, Always up to mischief, though. (laughs) One of those people that... Had, uh, he had this infectious smile too, like you knew he was up to something no good but he would just smile and um, you know, oh okay, must be alright. <laughs> it was a Friday night and the boys were getting ready to go to a big party. There was about four, three or four boys in Coolangatta Tweed who had a birthday on the 14th of August and Sean came up to me, raised his armpit stuck his armpit in front of my nose and said, how do you like my new deodorant? <laughs> so I said, oh, it's really great, Sean, really great. So um, with that, he gave me a kiss and said, see you later. And that was the last time I'd spoken to him. So that was really beautiful. I actually was going to stay at my best friend's house and he was his house was just near there. And... My brother and my mate Joel and their girlfriends were like, oh, we'll, we'll get a lift home and, and I'll see you tomorrow. And my, my mate's girlfriend was driving the car and she hit a bump and as she's, as she's hit the bump, her foot slipped and accidentally hit the accelerator, not the brake, and um, they ran into a tree and then, you know, hit another gutter and that. But. Um, it was an old falcon where my mate had laid the back seat down and um, Joel and Sean were, were um, laying in the back, no seat belts, and they just got flung out of the car. We're walking home and I was seriously 100 metres away from my friend's house and this um, Commodore pulls up and um, two of the older guys from the area stepped out of the car and they're like, get in the car. As I jumped in the car, we, we started driving off and I realised it was, um, there was two detectives in the front and um, the two older boys just grabbed me and just went, we got some bad news and, and Sean passed away. And it was, um, yeah, I just exploded. It was uh, definitely something that, how do you explain that? You know, like, such the shock and everything like that. And um, they're like, all right, we, we think Joel's dead too. And we're just like, oh. Joel, 
is Joel Green, one of Mick's best mates, who also passed away in the accident. I had to go home and I had to wake my mum. Yeah, just had to explain to her what, what happened and, uh, and then ring the rest of my family, which was, um, yeah, was the hardest day of my life. What'd your mum say, mate? Um, oh, um, at first she, she didn't know if he got stabbed or, or, um, or, you know, was in a fight and... Mick was screaming and screaming, Sean's been killed, Sean's been killed, and I don't know why, but I thought he'd been attacked or something. But then I walked outside the bedroom and there were all these men there, and, um, yeah, they told me what had happened. It's just... It's just unbelievable, you know? You never think it's going to happen to you. You know, I was on the phone to my dad and my brothers, and. And I had to call my sister in England, and um, and yeah, just just that whole sort of numbing feeling just came over, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was radical. How could you ever ask a young man like that to make a phone call like that? Pretty much, uh, wasn't allowed out of the house, which um, which was pretty heavy, and all I wanted to do was just go and see it, and. I wanted to know if it was uh, true or not, and um, yeah, it was, uh, oh, it was definitely, it was the shittest week ever. Yeah, it was uh, not fun at all. Mate, no. Take, take 15 seconds. You all right? You want to drink? Yeah, no, I'm all right. Fucking hell, you're making me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really told too many people that story. <laughs> better tribute to two rising stars than a memorial at sea. The surfers paddled out the back to form a human chain. Then in the waves the two young surfers called home, they set adrift wreaths and two old surfboards in their memory. Mick um, didn't leave his room for a week. He had his dog. And that was it. Like I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do actually. I, I just sat in my room. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, something where, I don't know, I, I just, I really didn't know what was going to happen next. You know, I, I vowed I wasn't going to drive. I, I, you know, I didn't know if I was ever going to surf again or, and, um, I just sat there and I didn't want to, didn't want to walk outside and, and, and just, talk to people. I, I just did not want to talk to people. And, um, you know, I was, when people come to the house and, and, um, and were there, I was fine. But when I went outside, yeah, it's just, didn't want to, didn't want to face people. I remember Mick, yeah, for, probably for a good three months, was, I guess, a wreck. But it seemed within 12 months, it was, after probably 12, maybe even two years, uh, I guess you have to accept it. And he seemed like he, he accepted it a bit, bit more than, you know, I guess uh, than most people would think. For me too, I just thought he, he really accepted, you know, you've got to get on with your life and, and stuff like that, which was huge for, for someone at 16 to do, you know. And 
it grew him as a person, you know. He really became, boy went to a man like that and he became, you know, I guess the Mickey is. Yeah, let's roll. Recording and rolling. And I'm addressing you the whole yeah, time. Yeah. That's the voice of Phil McNamara, who has coached and mentored Mick since he was 14. It was, it was uh, cruel that uh, the, the youngest member of the family had to take on such a, you know, a senior role. How do you think it affected him as his mother looking at one of your sons? He grew up and wanted to be um, the rescuer for everybody else. He wanted to make everybody else feel better. And that took a lot of guts. He just, uh, he, he stood up, you know, just said, all right, well, I'm gonna deal with this and, and, and help the family through it. And, you know, the, the, the fact that they've coped so well <clears throat> um, and, and dealt with it and processed that whole thing and, and made Sean's memory a, a shining uh, memory, I, th I think that's, you can probably say that's because Mick, you know, took charge, you know, even though he was only 16. Think about him every day, like, still. Um, and, you know, I even just caught myself yesterday, I was like, you know, I wonder, wonder what would have happened if that didn't happen. Um, at 17, Mick was pegged as a future surfing star. That future became the present quicker than many expected. The invited wildcard Mick Fanning is tearing his way through the main draw at Bells. The world's most historic surfing event, the Rip Curl Pro in 2001. Mick was just 19. Can you believe it? The kid takes down Danny Wills. Mick Fanning is the Bells champion. Wow, the rest of the surfing world is officially on notice. Mick dedicated that first win to his brother, Sean. The next year, 2002, the man now dubbed White Lightning for his speed across the wave, won again at Jeffreys Bay in South Africa. On a classic day of pumping five-foot perfection, Mick was unstoppable. Fanning is the king of J-Bay. At his very first attempt, Mick produced a fifth-place finish in the world title that year. He improved one spot to fourth in 2003, behind surfing legends Andy Irons and Kelly Slater. Mick was now one of the big boys, one of the best surfers on the planet. The 2004 season beckoned, a world title shot, a real possibility. Just for a moment, I'm going to sidetrack the story just a little bit here to show you how a young Mick approached life on tour. Remember, he's only 22, well paid by big sponsors like Rip Curl, travelling the world, surfing the best waves on the planet for a job popular with fans. Life is bloody amazing. So it's time you were introduced to Eugene. Yeah, that is Eugene. Now, Eugene draws a similar response from the Fanning crew. Eugene Fanning. <laughs> Eugene? Well, yeah. How on earth do you deal with Eugene? <laughs> uh, I, I'm entertained by Eugene, you know, most of the time. So, who is Eugene? I guess he's sort of like my alter ego. So you've got to understand Mick's a Gemini. And Gemini's are known to flip and switch like that. So Mick's alter ego is Eugene. And he, he is completely opposite. He's not a gentleman. He's a uh, <laughs> obnoxious uh, person you would come across. But he gets a bit tedious, you know, <laughs> 
when he comes in and steamrolls you at three o'clock in the morning and then does it again at 3.05 and 3.10. <laughs> Usually I'm, I'm pretty calm and, and, um, and, you know, pretty sensible and then after a few beers I sort of just let it go and uh, anything stupid that can be done, I'll try it. <laughs> And that's, that's pretty much where it is. But um, some people love him, some people hate him. Our first years on tour was so much fun, you know. We, when Eugene came out, we, we used to have so much fun with it. You know, he'd, uh, he would even, you know, sleep his beard out. Eugene's coming out tonight. You know, we used to love it. He'd <laughs> be like, yes, you know, you're in for a good night. Who doesn't love a good alter ego? Your long-time sponsor, Rip Curl, perhaps? Oh, I love Eugene. They love him too. That was Neil Ridgway, senior manager and Mick's main man at Rip Curl. Eugene's main man too. At Surfer Pole one year in particular in America, he came on the stage and he was nude and he was, you know, for the, for the whole industry in America and he's on the stage nude, you know, and he came on the stage and Kelly Slater was giving his acceptance speech and Mick came on the stage and started talking to Kelly and Kelly's like, Mick, what would happen if I did that to you in Australia? He said, you'd get laid. So, now you understand the reason for that little sidetrack. Now your sea life as a pro surfer was pretty good fun. Mick was on fire. The 2004 season had begun. What could go wrong? A lot. A whole lot. That's the end of part one of The Moment Mick Fanning. Please join us for part two when Mick confronts a potentially career-ending injury as he strives for surfing Nirvana. Listener.